What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This program is uh, for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, pretty specifically. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you're not a Catholic, maybe you uh, were a Catholic, an active Catholic years ago, um, but in, in any event, you've got that question, we've got that answer for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, you'll want to dial the U.S. country code, which is 1, and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you uh, want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there live right now. All you have to do is put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and we'll uh, hopefully get it answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here from Joe, who says, I have heard many older ex-Catholics say that when they grew up, they were discouraged from reading the Bible. Some even claim they were told they would go to hell if they tried. It seems the atmosphere of the church these days is one that encourages reading the Bible on your own time, maybe at worst just indifference toward the matter. So what created this culture of suspicion in the U.S. toward private reading of sacred scripture in the mid-20th century, and what has changed since then? Again, that's from Joe. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So let, let's before I answer that question, let's talk about the status of the Bible in the Catholic Church and the lay reading of Scripture. So okay. uh, the Church's position is that the Bible is the Word of God. We don't regard it as the rule of faith, meaning the sort of the guidebook on Christian life and theology the mm -hmm. way Protestants do, but we mm -hmm. do see it as an inspired text uh, that is extremely useful in the liturgical life of the Church, we preach from it, we pray from it, it nourishes our souls and helps us grow closer to God. And, of course, the primary place for the Word of God is proclamation in the liturgy, right? And But the Church definitely says that lay people should read the Bible, and in fact it offers indulgences, which Protestants don't like very much, but that's a way of encouraging people to devotional activity. You can gain an indulgence for spending time reading the Bible. And uh, there's, there's always been lay engagement in Scripture. Now, the history of the, what should we say, the kind of antipathy towards lay reading of Scripture dates to the late Middle Ages because there was a period in history when um, after, say, the Latin, the Latin was a language of the empire, it was a language of the church. Um, of course, the church kept the Latin language even as the, uh, the populace began to gradually move away from the use of Latin. And it wasn't intentional, but a few centuries after, the, you know, into the Carolingian era, uh, Catholics woke up one day and realized that they didn't speak the liturgical language, and so only those who had been trained in it knew what was going on. And um, and by the time you get to say the the uh, uh, the, the late 11th and the 12th centuries, 
that kind of division between the liturgical practice in the church run by the clergy and then lay spirituality led to some lay initiative that was outside the boundaries of the church and church authority into some heretical movements that were quite problematic. And things like um, the Cathar movement, the Albigensian movement in southern France, which was sort of deeply um, uh, dualistic and uh, hatred of the body, and they practiced ritual suicide. And they had a, a number of really, really sort of damaging beliefs and practices. Wow. That, uh, that raised a lot of suspicion. Others turned to lay reading of Scripture in an explicitly politically revolutionary vein, like the Wycliffeites and the Hussites, who, uh, for whom lay reading the Bible became a kind of uh, rallying cry for resisting uh, and overthrowing governments. Uh, so it got associated with revolutionary elements. And so there was a period in the late Middle Ages where the Church did not encourage the lay reading of the Bible, but because it had been implicated in these social movements that mm-hmm. were, you know, apocalyptic and millenarian and mm-hmm. revolutionary and so forth. Uh, but that was an anomaly in the history of the Church. Uh, the Protestant Reformation is—a lot of times people think that uh, individual reading of the Bible was a major point in Protestantism, and that, that's actually a misreading of early Protestant history. Um, the, the vernacular preaching of Scripture in the Church— was a major position in early Protestantism. They definitely wanted the Bible in the common tongue, and they wanted it read and commented on in churches, but it wasn't that much of an emphasis on personal Bible study and reading. And in fact, the same kind of concerns that Catholic authorities had about lay people getting a hold of the Word of God and going off and doing crazy things, early Protestant leaders had as well. They also had those very same difficulties, and it led to a lot of internal tension within Protestantism. It's really not until you get maybe, you know, 17th, 18th century that the idea of private Bible study within Protestantism really becomes sort of the dominant way of engaging the text outside of the liturgy. Um, And because of that, you know, there's always been kind of a push and pull between Protestants and Catholics in the West, and when there's a lot of antagonism, if if Catholics pushed really hard one way, Protestants pushed the other, Mm, right? And the same thing in reverse. So, I mean, I can remember growing up as a Protestant kid, and if somebody started talking about liturgy and sacraments, there would be an automatic, you know, gut-wrenching response. Oh, we can't go that way. That's the Catholic way of doing things. Mm. And likewise, there would be sort of fundamentalist-type reactionary Catholics that would say, oh, reading the Bible? Isn't that the Protestant thing to do? You know, so it's just kind of a reactionary paranoia, I think. And you saw it in both communities. It wasn't Mm. limited to one or the other. And each one would sort of cut something off you know, to spite the face of the other, as yeah, it were. Yeah. And um, but there, that was the that was the the sense that Catholics needed to be, um, especially in uh, the Americas, where where in North America, where Protestantism was so dominant, the idea that Catholics have to sort of guard against Protestant influence, and we can't let ourselves be Protestantized, and that was a Protestant way of doing things. That did sometimes lead in Catholic families to this antipathy towards a private Bible study. But I mean, that was a that was an era of history, and you're, yeah. you're right. That's definitely not the view. Historically, and it's definitely not the view the magisterium takes today. Now, I do want to say this as a as a practicing Catholic and a theologian: personal Bible study, while good, is not the be all and end all of Christian life. Some Protestants think it is, right? But really, it's it's the transformation of our character in the imitation of Christ. You can read the Bible all day long and not engage the moral life, and it won't do you a bit of good. Well, uh, Joe, thank you so much uh, for your question. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones here at eight three three. 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. It's called to Communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. Stay with us. 
It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Fred, a first-time caller from Omaha, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Fred, what's on your mind today, sir? Good good afternoon. Thank you. A uh, quick question. Um, w- what does a Christian have to do to get to heaven? Yeah, thanks. Uh, what a Christian has to do to get to heaven is to die with the love of God in their heart. Right now, so the question becomes then: How do you get the love of God in your heart? Right, and the Catholic position is that you can't just will yourself to the love of God. Right, you can't lift yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. We need help from outside. We need the help of grace. Grace comes to us in tangible ways through the sacraments, uh, through the ministry of the Church, and through the life of the Christian faithful journeying together. And but with those with those helps, we can transform our character. And, uh, and become more like Christ. And when our, when our, when our will and our desires turn to God, uh, we want to do his will. And even if we stumble and, and fall, we, we get up, we try again, we go to confession, receive absolution, and we persevere. That that state of life is, uh, is what we mean by loving God, and loving God is what you have to do to go to heaven. Yeah. Fred, is that helpful for you? Excellent. Thank, thank you very much. You are most welcome. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on EWTN television, your best way, uh, best way to get to the show is by sending us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. Let's go to Karen now in Columbus, Ohio, watching us today on YouTube. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind today? Hello. Um, my question is, um, if you go to confession and you've been forgiven, um, I'm a post-abortive woman and I... I pretty much cry every day about it, but I feel logically forgiven, but if we're going to... I can't make enough atonement to make up for that. That would be impossible. So I, you know, what do you do? But when you die and you stand before God and you have to give an account of everything you've done, and when it says your sins are forgiven and I remember them no more, are they all brought back up again, or... I'm confused. Oh, yeah. I thank have... you so much. I really, what a wonderful question. Thank you. And thank you for calling. And thank you for interest in the church. And let me, you know, before I say anything else about this, we're all sinners. And we all have skeletons in our closet. And some of us have got some big hunking cowboys in there, let me tell you. Yeah, you know, and th- yeah. We all do. And, 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 you know, I was just talking to a priest recently who's just been ordained. I mean, he just got ordained this year, and right out of the box, he started hearing confessions like on day one. And he said, you know what, right out of the box, first week, he said, I heard everything. Everything. These were not, you know, this wasn't I kicked my dog and ate too much breakfast. He's like, (laughs) I heard the big ones Mm. right off the bat, every one of them, all day. So, you know, when you come back to church— like this this is human life like we we all have done things that we're ashamed of we've all done things that are wrong and the church is there to welcome us to forgive us you know the priests the people of god we're not we don't pass judgment we we rejoice and this is the proper attitude it's rejoicing when somebody comes back and they've got their laundry list of sins however, however big they are christ said that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous people that have no need of repentance. So think about that in your case or mine, right? So, you know, I, let's say I have all my, my perfect neighbors or all the perfect kids I went to grammar school with, and I go off and do some really atrocious thing. Really atrocious thing. And then I come back, 
Jesus says he's happier about my coming back than about, you know, Sally, Bob, and Ralph that never went away. Mm. That, that's, that's amazing. Happier yeah. about me. And, that's, and the priest is like that in the confessional, too. Like, they, they are rejoicing when somebody comes back. No matter, you know, the, the bigger the sin, the happier they are that this person has come home, okay? So don't ever let that fear or shame bother you about coming back. Now, in terms of the last judgment, um, here would be a completely wrong way to think about the judgment of Christ. Uh, Jesus is not the the celestial auditor who is going through the books, checking off every sin and peccadillo and measuring them against every good worker virtue. Mm. You know, like like the Egyptian god of the dead who was weighing people's hearts, you know, on a balance. That that's not how it works. To get into heaven, your your good deeds do not have to outweigh your bad deeds. It's not a it's not an accounting exercise. You know, it's not an it's not an audit of your past behavior. Uh, so let's say you live a completely depraved life, like like St. Dismas, the thief on the cross, and everything you've done up to this point has just been wretched. And then, you know, in the last hour of your life, you say, God, I'm really sorry, please forgive me. And God forgives you, and he extends grace to you, and changes you, and gives you a new nature and a good heart. The Lord calls us being born again. Then on the day of judgment, this is the only thing that you'll hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah. Right? Because, see, the purpose of the last judgment isn't to draw out everybody's fault and, 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 uh, and, uh, and blame you. It often is rejoicing and thanksgiving and glorification is also part of the last judgment. Mm-hmm. Now, the only people whose sins will be trotted out, as it were, in front of the whole world are unrepented sins unrepented sins but for those who've been reconciled to god then then it's a, then it's a celebration it's graduation yeah karen we hope that's helpful for you god bless you thank you so much for your call today here on ewtn's call to communion with dr david andrews we do have a couple of lines open if you would like to join in with your question 833-288-EWTN that's 833-288-3986 let's go to madeline now a first-time caller in baton rouge listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Madeline, what's on your mind today? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yep. yes, go right ahead. Okay. Um, I was wondering if the Jewish people think of Jesus as a prophet, and if they, are they still waiting for a Messiah, or do they still add to the old writings? Um, do they, when do they stop doing the animal sacrifices, you know, that were all the Torah laws? What has happened with them? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, uh, first of all, when you when you ask the question, what do Jewish people think? It really matters which Jewish people you're talking about. Yeah. You you can't generalize about all Jewish people any more than you can generalize about all Christians. But the the vast majority of practicing Jews today would probably not regard Jesus as a prophet. Um, I think a very common view held by many Jews today was, would be that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi um, who, depending on what school of thought you have, was either misunderstood by his disciples or perhaps a bit deluded himself, one of those positions or the other. Um, it, it, there used to be, uh, centuries ago and in, in the Talmud, more antagonism, more antipathy towards Christ by Jewish thinkers, and they sometimes derided him as a magician or a sorcerer or in league with the devil, that sort of thing. 
and that's understandable. I mean, like there was a lot of antagonism between Christians and Jews. I'd mm-hmm. say the common attitude today is probably much more along the line of Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who was misunderstood by his followers. And uh, there's a lot of sort of sympathetic scholarly engagement uh, of Christ by Jewish scholars today. And there are some pretty outstanding Jewish New Testament scholars that study the New Testament, but from a Jewish point of view. And I'm thinking about uh, uh, Paula Fredrickson, Pamela Eisenbaum, and Amy Jill Levin. There are three well-known Jewish uh, f- female scholars who study the New Testament from a Jewish point of view, and they're interested in Jesus studies. Um, but um, but most of them probably would not regard him as a prophet. Now, in terms of animal sacrifices, according to the Jewish law, the only place you could lawfully offer sacrifices was in the temple in Jerusalem, and that temple was destroyed in the year 70 A.D., and has never been rebuilt. And so temple sacrifices stopped with the destruction of the temple. That's why Judaism came to take the shape that it now has. Because in antiquity, there were different schools of thought, different schools of Jewish practice. There were some that were more centered on the temple. There were some that were more centered on the study of the law and the practice of the Torah. And those that were centered on the temple cult obviously faded away when there was no temple. And the, the last guys left standing, as it were, were the ones that were more given to engagement with the Torah and, and the practices of the law. And those would be the Pharisees mm-hmm. that developed into what you think of today as rabbinic Judaism. And the, the collection, Judaism went through a, a, a period of development. There was a, a period of sort of oral commentary early on in the, uh, in the Christian era that began to get codified into law and commentary. Uh, and uh, the the record of that of that commentary is called the Talmud, and so the Torah, well, actually the Tanakh, which is the, what we think of as the Hebrew Bible, plus the Talmud, is uh, the sort of the textual basis of modern rabbinic Judaism. Uh, but there are, you know, hundreds of different schools of thought within Judaism. It's a very diverse, a theologically diverse movement. Right? It's a it's a it's a tradition held together by some ethnic ties and traditions and culture, mm-hmm. um, you know, with a common base in, in certain texts and practices. But within that, there's an awful lot of diversity. Madeline, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call. Here is Pete now. Pete is in Lancaster, Ohio, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Hello, Pete. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, Dr. Anders. Thank you very much for taking my call. Um, several months ago, I was out of state uh, for a funeral for a, for a family member. And um, during the funeral mass, the, uh, after the consecration, the priest basically said somewhere along the lines of, of, you know, we will be distributing communion as long as you believe this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of, of Christ, then please come forward and receive communion. And to me, it seemed like he was inviting anyone, even non-Catholics, to come to... Um, up to receive communion, and I, I, I looked at my uh, another family member, and I thought, well, this is weird. Um, but if that is in fact wrong, um, should I address it possibly with their bishop? Yeah, thanks. So believing in the real presence is not a sufficient uh, preparation for receiving Holy Communion. Um, I believe in the real presence. I'm a Catholic. But if I believe in the real presence, but find myself in the state of mortal sin, unconfessed mortal sin, then I'm not fit to go to communion. Yeah. So what, what the priest should have said was, if you believe the Catholic faith and right, you've had access to sacramental confession, 
which right there, that would limit it to the Catholics in the room. Sure. Okay. Then you can, you can safely come to communion. But to invite people to come just because they believe in the real presence is, is to invite people to potentially do harm to their souls. Now, why do I say that? People go, oh, Anders, that sounds so harsh. Why would I say that? Well, uh, look at me in my case. Like I just mentioned, if I were in the state of mortal sin and I said, you know, it's no big deal for me to go to communion in the state of mortal sin. Um, well, what is communion? It is literally communing in Christ. This is the pledge of eternal life. Christ says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have life, right? If I think that I can, in a cavalier way, commune with Christ and have a pledge of eternity, of beatitude in him, while I remain at enmity with him in my will, then I'm fooling myself and I'm actually setting myself up to harden my conscience. It will make it harder for me to repent in the future because, hey, I've had the pledge of eternal life. It, 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 is, well, it is well with my soul, as the song goes, mm, right? Yeah. And so inviting people to commune when they're, when they're not in the state of grace, you're, you're not actually helping them. You're not helping them. You're actually hurting them. You're encouraging them to persist in unrepentant sin, right? Now, what if you're not Catholic and you don't have access to the sacrament of confession? Well, St. Paul says we are to judge people within the church. That is our job. Right. We are not to judge people outside the church. So if I'm a priest and somebody comes up and says, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm not going to tell them that they're in the state of grace or the state of sin. Because I don't know. I, they, they haven't been to confession to me. I don't have any jurisdiction over their life. I have absolutely no way to judge their case. I don't know I'm ignorant. That's not being judgmental. It's the, op, it's the, it's the refusal to pass judgment. Yeah. So people sometimes say, hey, you're not letting me into communion. You're being judgmental. No, it's the opposite. Because I can't judge you, I can't safely admit you. And so non-Catholics, it's not safe for me to admit you. Because for mm -hmm. all I know, you could be in the state of mortal sin. All right? Yeah. But let's say you're in the state of grace. Is it even safe to admit you then? What is communion for a Catholic? Among other things, it is not only the pledge of our eternal life with Christ, but it is the pledge of our unity within the body of Christ today. This is the sacrament of our unity. So the act of going to communion is an act of, of it's a performative act of demonstrating my agreement with the Catholic faith. The Catholic faith contains a lot of doctrine beyond the real presence. Lutherans believe in the real presence. They deny the sacrifice of the Mass. Right? I mean, you yeah. can go down the list of all the things that non-Catholics don't believe. And yet to invite them in communion is to invite them to testify by their actions that they believe the Catholic faith. Or worse, it's to suggest to the non-Catholic that there is no difference between the Catholic Church and other, and other Christian bodies. Mm. And it's to encourage them in the false belief of denominationalism. So although it may be kindly meant, it is ignorant in the extreme, and it is pastoral malpractice that is forbidden by the church. So it's also an act of disobedience on the part of, of mm -hmm. the particular priest, right? Mm -hmm. Should you tell his bishop, well, you could, you could. You mentioned that this happened months ago and it wasn't your diocese. Right, right. So practically speaking, the odds that anything will happen are like probably similar to the odds that we'll win the lottery. Yeah. But you could. You could. Pete, thanks so much uh, for your question today, and it's uh, called a communion here on EWTN. Uh, we have a couple of lines open at the moment. If you call right now with your question, we can hopefully get you on today's program. Our number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 
288-3986. If you're watching on TV today, shoot us an email if you would like to. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to tackle a question from Aaron watching us on YouTube. Again, that phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Call to communion with Dr. David Andrews in progress here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends in Ohio need to hear from you next week. St. Gabriel Radio in Central and Southern Ohio is airing their fall pledge drive next Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening in Columbus or Portsmouth or Chillicothe or really anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. We'll get back to the phones in a moment. Uh, Here's a question from Aaron watching us on YouTube today. Aaron says, what does it mean to be attached to sin in Catholicism? If we are theoretically free to sin in heaven, how are we ever truly free from vice? Okay, thanks. Let me answer the second part first and then go back to the first part. Sure. To suggest that we're free to sin in heaven is a total misunderstanding of the nature of heaven. Yeah. Right? So, is is water free to not be wet? <laughs> right? I mean, the question is nonsensical, right? Yeah. Is goodness free to become evil? It, it doesn't make any sense, no, right? right. No. So, God, God is the ultimate reality of heaven. God is, by definition, goodness. He's not just good. He doesn't just possess good as a quality. He, he is goodness. Everything yeah. else is, that is good is good with reference to the goodness that is God. Okay? So God's very being is goodness. Uh, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't will evil any more than water could not be—any more than water could be wet. Okay? Mm. Now, the reward of the just in heaven is the vision of God. And when you hear the word vision, you think that, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to a movie and put on my 3D glasses and look at God for all eternity. We only use the word vision because we don't have a better word. Right. It really means a kind of immediate intuition of the, of the nature, essence, and goodness of God in my very soul, where, where my consciousness is, is flooded and penetrated and interpenetrating with— the very being and, and goodness of God. That's not an experience we have in this life, right? In this life, we can discern the goodness of creatures. I mean, I was, before I came over here, I, I went home and I, you know, threw balls for my golden retriever in the backyard. He's good. You know, I, I enjoy the goodness of throwing a ball for my golden retriever, right? Um, uh, and I can infer from the goodness of concrete things like my dog or my cat or, you know, my wife or my children or whatever. You know, that there's that there's some ultimately good source from which from which all these good things come, but I don't see the ultimate source. I just see the concrete particulars. Yes. In heaven, you're united to the ultimate thing. Yeah. All right. And so there's there's literally nothing that that can detract that can pull your mind or your will away from total satisfaction. Like what? How could you be tempted? How could you be tempted? You know yeah. that. Like, there's, it's not, it's not possible. It's an, it's an impossibility that you could be tempted away from utter beatitude to something lesser, right? Yeah. So it's not possible for you to sin in heaven. Um, and the, the, the more we draw close to God in this life, the harder and harder it becomes to sin. 
if my, it, it is possible for the will to be confirmed in virtue such that sin becomes a practical, if not a theoretical, impossibility. Now, for most of us, we don't get there in this life, but the saints do. The saints do get there in this life. It's called mm-hmm. the perfect union of the will with God. Okay, And in fact, the Catholic position is that when you do that, you don't become less free, you become more free. Now, what do I mean by that? The easiest way to see this is in its, is its, in its denial. So, who are the least free people on the planet? Well, probably drug addicts, right? They're free because they're not free because they are compelled to follow their passions. And freedom is the ability intellectually to deliberate between various goods, right? And the, with drug addiction, or and really with any sin, the the more you get involved in that, the narrower and narrower your your vision becomes, and the more your choices are constrained by your passions. So imagine that op- that practice in reverse, the, the spiraling up out of that where you have more and more, greater and greater freedom, more freedom of action, more freedom of movement, because you're less and less constrained by your passions and more open to the transcendent good. So the growth in grace is actually a growth in freedom. And the life of heaven would be you'd have the most freedom, even though you'd have zero capacity to sin. Aaron, thanks so much for watching us today on YouTube. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Here's an email from Frank. You may have to put on your Carl Sagan hat for this one. Uh, The observable universe is estimated to contain two trillion galaxies with a hundred million stars. Well, since God created all of these, is it possible that there are other worlds similar to Earth that followed their creation by God had inhabitants who could have fallen like Adam and Eve and therefore needed redemption? If so, would Christ have assumed their bodily form and become their Savior also? And finally, do you think that our Earth is totally unique in the economy of salvation in the universe? Okay, thanks. So it is, of course, theoretically possible that God could create other worlds with other uh, rational sentient creatures that have, uh, you know, f- that have a kind of morally relevant uh, freedom of action. Um, I suppose it's possible that God could create such a world and he could grant to such beings a share in his nature that we call grace, right? Yeah. Um, uh, there's no necessity that God convey that grace or, if they need it, convey salvation in the same way that he conveys it to us. Right. This is an explicitly a point of Catholic doctrine that God was not compelled by the fact of our sin to will the Incarnation. And he could have saved us in some other way. He chose to save us by way of the Incarnation because it was fitting for him to do so. But it, he wasn't compelled by any necessity of his own nature or by our nature to save us in this way. So you can't reason from, hey, maybe there's another world and maybe future sin to the conclusion, therefore, God necessarily uh, provides another kind of incarnation for another species. That, that doesn't follow because the incarnation is not necessary. It's not logically, it's not essentially necessary for the salvation of the human race. It was chosen by God because of its appropriateness, but he's not compelled to that to that end. Okay. So you can't, you can't do the math on that problem. All right. Um, uh, the, now, because... The overwhelming sort of tendency of Catholic thought in this question through the centuries has been to hold the uniqueness of the human planet in the scheme of redemption because of the Incarnation. That the Incarnation implies that there is something unique about our situation in the cosmos. Uh, That led St. Thomas Aquinas to the opinion that there is only one world. 
right? The dignity of the incarnation led him to the, the belief that, you know, there may be other planets, but there's only one world. Mm. Um, uh, you know, what do I think of the matter? <sighs> what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we'll end that on that. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Let's go now to Andrea, a first-time caller from uh, North Dakota, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Andrea, what's on your mind today? I am just curious what you all think of um, the prophecies that are floating around right now. It seems like you can't go anywhere online or, you know, um, any kind of Catholic sites where people are talking about no travel after October, we're getting close to the tribulation, um, three dark days, you know, you have to have your stockpile of food. Um, Do you put much stock into that, or is this just personal revelation that some people are sharing with others. Yeah, thank you. So I would I would rather watch reruns of Peanuts than, <laughs> than bother with, with any purported revelations about the imminent end of the world. I mean, mm. I, I really would. I mean, I would rather watch paint dry, to be honest with you. I'd rather clean out my closet than, than bother about this stuff. And the reason why is, professionally, I trained as an historian of religion. And the genre of apocalyptic literature uh, comes into existence really in the Second Temple period in, in late Judaism on the eve of the, of the Incarnation and the, and the origins of Christianity. And, uh, you know, we find, uh, you know, some hints of it in the Hebrew Bible, but then the intertestamental literature, places like the Book of Enoch, it it's really starts to pick up steam a bit. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the New Testament has, a, has that genre of writing in it, and there is definitely an apocalyptic note uh, within the New Testament in the, pre- in the preaching of Jesus. But Christ, when he deals with this apocalypse, these apocalyptic themes, tells us explicitly that no one knows the day or the hour, right? And so the, po- the point of the parables and so forth is be ready, be ready. But, you know, we've been in the end of the world since the ascension of Christ. I mean, G- St. Paul writes to his own audiences, those upon whom the end of the ages has come. Right? So the expectation of the imminent end of the world is the state that all Christians are supposed to live in at all times ever since the ascension of Christ. And for me personally, I'm 52 years old, and according to the actuaries, I mean, I'm dead in 30 years, right? So the end of the world for me definitely comes with, you know, probably within about 30 years. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, that's almost a certainty, right? So, you know, memento mori. Live in the expectation of your own sure. imminent death, sure. right? You will have to face the judgment and the, face Christ and answer for your life and so forth. And so that, that should frame the way we live every day. But in terms of these sort of date-setting apocalyptists who attempt to peg it to geopolitical events, I've watched this in history for 2,000 years. I mean, I haven't personally been around 2,000 <laughs> years, but I've read the 2,000-year history of the Church. Yeah. And I've watched this kind of uh, frenetic activity— for happen for 2,000 years and fail miserably every time. And as a social movement, it's almost always disastrous. I mean, it's, it's not harmless. It's, it's really bad. And when you look at the kind of fruit that this way of being religious brings into the world, it's really devastating. It tends to take people's eyes off of the social realities of their day, except with the most reactionary and paranoid glasses, mm-hmm. so that they're not actually doing the work of the Catholic Church in the world, right? I mean, the Church—Christ says we're supposed to be salt and light, and the Church's doctrine on the laity is that we're supposed to get out there. We're supposed to marry. We're supposed to have children. Uh, we're supposed to uh, get educated. We're supposed to have jobs. And we're supposed to live just lives in society and ultimately to promote the Church's vision of social justice, Right, care for the least among us, care for the poor, 
uh, you know, bring sound policies into government, work mm-hmm. for a for a just economy, all these kinds of things. And and when when your whole orientation is well, it's all going to burn up in the next week. You know, who cares about the climate? Who cares about the economy? Who cares about the political environment? Because you know, it's all going to go away. Um, then it it really prevents you from living productively in the world as a Catholic and being mm-hmm. that salt and light. And worse, it has very often in history fomented. Um, violent uh, uh, political military re- reactions that have led to I- intense bloodshed. Right? I mean, it, it's really, really bad. This yeah. was very much implicated in the Protestant Reformation, for example. I mean, the, there's a reason why uh, uh, the Thirty Years' War happened. Right? I mean, there's a reason why Europe erupted in the wars of religion in the 17th century. And it was this kind of apocalyptic furor. If the Pope is the Antichrist, or Luther is the Antichrist, and the other side is the devil, and the end of the world is upon us, then, you know, you just go to war and take up the sword. And that was the way people saw it. And so mm-hmm. I just think it's, I think it's really harmful, uh, and I think it's typically kind of unstable, disaffected people who feel frustrated by the, the current social political environment who like the idea of being among God's elect and take refuge in the expectation that their problems won't really matter for much, much longer. Um, so they just need to get their blessed candles and go hide under the table. Wow. Andrea, is that helpful for you? Yeah, you know, it is. I kind of, you know, that's kind of my thought on it. But, you know, you hear so much about it, and everybody's, you know, like I said, everywhere you go on these Catholic places, it seems like they're talking about it. So I was just curious. My recommendation would be try some different Catholic websites. Let's start with EWTN. Let's do that. Absolutely. National Catholic Register, catholic.com. Can't go wrong with those. Those are trustworthy sites. Thank you so much you for your Go to vatican.va, too. You certainly can. <laughs> Called to communion here on EWTN. Let me tell you something about uh, something wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It's Our Lady of Sorrows Rosary with Pouch. This beautiful rosary made with deep cobalt blue facet-cut beads. They have the shape of oblong spheres or ellipsoids, if you wish. Uh, The centerpiece features a picture of Our Lady of Sorrows matching the image on the pouch that it comes in. The zippered tapestry rosary pouch has the image of both sides. It's just over three inches square. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. You might want to check that out. Let's go to Frank now. Frank is a first-time caller in Monticello, Indiana, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Frank, what's on your mind today, sir? Hmm, uh, a couple questions, uh, Dr. Anders. Um, I was at Mass uh, last week at one Mass, and, and the priest was basically uh, giving his homily about our oneness in the Church, and, and everything comes from the Church, if you will. Uh, but at as he was closing it out, he basically said that the Church forgives our sin. And that's where I got a little stumped, because, uh, you know, I, I would say that Jesus forgives our sin. Uh, I don't know if he had some, uh, you know, something deeper that I didn't pick up. Uh, I thought I'd ask that. And the other question, uh, it's, it's not close to this, but when we're at Mass and we say, I confess to Almighty God and you, my brothers and sisters, uh, is that a, a sense of some type of confession in case... You didn't make it to confession? Um, Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, Jesus said in John chapter 20 to the apostles, after he had risen from the dead, appeared to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. And then in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, he said to the apostles, uh, Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. 
And in the book of 2 Corinthians, we see Paul reconciling a sinner to the church and saying, I forgive him in the presence of Christ. So within the scriptures and, of course, within the whole history of the church, we, we definitely see Christ's ministers, the bishops, uh, the, the apostles, their successors, the bishops, and their collaborators, the priests, operating in the awareness of this promise that Christ gave to the church, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. And the, that power, which comes from the Holy Spirit, is like the power of an ambassador of a nation. So, you know, the president could send a U.S. ambassador to some foreign power and give him a delegated authority to, say, negotiate the terms of a treaty on the president's behalf. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that ambassador has a real authority. He, he's been authorized to conclude this treaty, right? But it, it's a delegated authority. It comes from the president or if you're a monarchy from the king or whatever. But it doesn't make it not authority. It really is authority, but it's a delegated authority. Sure. And so Christ has delegated the authority to forgive sins to the church. And so that's a true statement. Now, does it ultimately come from Christ? Yes, but it's a delegated authority, right? And there's a profound benefit to this. And there are some people who look at this situation and they, they're offended by it because it, they, it seems to them to suggest that the power of God to forgive sins has somehow been restricted to the Catholic priesthood, like the Catholic priesthood is the only avenue for the forgiveness of sins. That's a misunderstanding of the doctrine. The Catholic priesthood is not the only avenue. It's the only visible, tangible, audible, sensible, objective reality. Mm. So it's the only reality about which you can say, you know, when I have seen this priest and heard these words, that I have a guarantee, because it's been guaranteed by Christ's authority, that my sins are forgiven. There are other ways to get your sins forgiven, but they don't have that tangible element. You know, when I was a Protestant in college, I used to go to the chapel at my school and I would pray, and I would ask God to forgive me my sins. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice if if God would whisper, you know, down from heaven and say, it's cool, Dave, I've got this, you're forgiven. Just that little added something to my prayer of forgiveness to yeah. let me know that it had taken, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That's what the authority that Christ gave to the church conveys. It gives that verbal authorization so that the sinner has that confidence and that encouragement in the life of faith. It's there to help us, not to be a hindrance to us. But it's always possible to petition God directly for the forgiveness of our sins. Of course it is. I mean, the Lord's Prayer that, that, that Christ gave us, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. So the sacrament works with, not against, God's universal will to mm-hmm. save. Mm-hmm. Now, with respect to the confidior, the prayer we say at the beginning of Mass, I confess to Almighty God and you, my brothers and sisters, um, it is certainly possible that praying that with true contrition could affect the forgiveness of all sins. However, that does not absolve you of the responsibility to go to the sacramental confession. Okay. And the Church's law is, if you're conscious of a grave sin, say, murder, adultery, uh, you know, grand larceny, this kind of thing, then you should go to the confessional before you go to communion, right? Because you want to be sure. Sure. Um, but, uh, but for venial sins, for lesser sins, uh, those kinds of prayers of contrition are perfectly adequate. Confession is not necessary. And, um, and, and it also comes through the ministration, through the ministry of the Church. Frank, thanks so much for your call today. It's Call to Communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Bill now. Bill is in Jefferson Township, Pennsylvania, listening on the EWTN app, a free download for you. And uh, Bill, what's on your mind today, sir? Okay. Uh, 
you were talking a little bit about the Jew, the Jews there, and uh, Christ was a Jew, okay, and our religion, uh, Christianity, uh, comes from the Jews, okay, and he was the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, okay, and he came from the line of David, correct? Okay, so uh, now the Jews that don't believe uh, uh, the apostles and the others that converted believed in the Jewish Messiah, that, that, that the Jewish Messiah was Christ, but the ones that rejected him, okay, and there are many, okay, do they know, uh, are they still waiting for Messiah, question one, and do they know that the Messiah will come from the line of David, like we believe? Do they believe that uh, the Jewish Messiah is... Uh, and how will they know? Do they know where the, what the line of David is? Yeah, like, thanks. Uh, I appreciate the question. So, um, Jewish people today are not monolithic. There's a lot of diversity in modern Judaism. There are a lot of Jews today who I think probably are not anticipating an historical Messiah, and they would translate those those messianic expectations into something more like uh, a hope or expectation for justice to pervade the world, in a more generalized sense of uh, eschatological hope, but mm-hmm. not pegged on an historical Messiah. The more you tend towards orthodoxy within Judaism, and I'm talking about like the movement called Jewish Orthodoxy, the more you tend to believe in an historical Messiah. And the history of of, uh, of Orthodox Judaism through the centuries has included a number of occasions where people thought that they had happened upon the historical Messiah. Now, obviously, none of those worked out, <laughs> but, but there have been Messianic pretenders in the history of Judaism. As to how they square that with Davidic lineage, I think, honestly, truthfully, it's, it'd be impossible to... to f- to find an historical lineage of David today. I mean, the last king of, of, uh, of Judah, Zedekiah, uh, was taken into exile in, in, um, in the 6th century B.C. Uh, Christ, of course, traced his own heritage to them, but, uh, to, you know, to the Davidic line. But since then, I mean, it's been lost in the, in the sands of time. I think it'd be impossible to reconstruct. To be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure how Orthodox apologists, Jewish Orthodox apologists, would, would handle that problem. But I, I know it hasn't stopped them from throwing up some contenders throughout history. Sure. Appreciate that. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for your call today. It's called to communion here on EWTN. Here's an email from Rich now. Rich says, we know that nothing unclean can enter heaven. Does that include our memories? If we experience sinful or profane things in this life, will we remember them in heaven? That's a really good question. So I... Uh, this is very speculative, of course. I don't think I've ever had this question before, and I don't think I've ever read a theological treatise on specifically on our memory of past sins. But my my intuition, based on my reading of Catholic theology, would be that we do remember um, our our historical lives on earth, including our missteps. Mm. And it's precisely in view of that that we are able to give thanks to God for our redemption. Like, it would be kind of a silly redemption if we said, Jesus, thank you so much for saving me. I'm not sure what you saved me from, <laughs> right? But you, you must have, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much, mm. right? So I, I, I think we will have historical memory, even of, our, even of our past faults. But when you talked about there being impure, the memories aren't impure. The past events were impure. Right. I mean, God has knowledge of human sin. It doesn't make God impure to know that. Okay. 
Appreciate that. Uh, Rich, thanks so much for your email. We'll probably close on this one, this uh, email from Jim. At the Last Supper, Jesus told the disciples that the bread they were eating was his body, the wine they were drinking was his blood, but he hadn't yet died and risen. So, at the Last Supper, were they actually consuming his earthly body and blood? And if so, what was the point of that? Okay, great question. It really goes into the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist. So, um, let's say that the apostles had celebrated Mass when Jesus was in the tomb. They didn't, but let's say that they did. Okay. What would have been in the sacred host? According to St. Thomas Aquinas, it would have been the body, blood, and divinity of Christ, but not his human soul. Because at that moment, his human soul was had descended to death. Okay. All right. Uh, if we celebrate Mass today, what's in the sacred host is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But Jesus, as he is presently uh, seated at the right hand of God. Ah. So, I mean, this is a silly image, but, you know, if, you know, Jesus doesn't play golf in heaven, but if, you know, if Jesus had a, had a, a nine iron in his hand, it would be like... The same Jesus holding the nine iron would be the Jesus in the host. Nine iron wouldn't be there, but that, that same Christ would be there, okay? So at the, at the Last Supper, the Christ who was present in the host was the Christ who was seated at the table. That's the, what was in there. So St. Augustine said that Jesus held himself in his own hands. Mm-hmm. And the Christ that the apostles consumed was the very same Jesus, temporally speaking, that was eating with them. And the point of the Last Supper, now when we offer the Mass, the Mass is the memorial of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Last Supper would have been the anticipation of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Mm, The vigil, as it were. Yes. All right. Jim, thanks so much uh, for your email. Glad to tackle a whole bunch of emails on today's program, along with all of your phone calls checking in via YouTube and Facebook. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast, and then we encore that same show at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can uh, check out the podcast anytime you wish by going to EWTN.com slash radio, EWTN.com slash radio, and then just click on the podcast button. You are good to go. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.